Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr. Pete Howson is a senior lecturer at the University of Northumbria in the Department of Geography and Environmental Sciences. Pete looks at how technologies such as blockchain and cryptocurrency are altering our relationship with the non-human world. It's a particularly important time to talk about crypto, as a sharp downturn in the cryptocurrency market bites, with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum recently losing as much as 60% of their value since hitting an all-time high in November 2021. Today, we're talking about the link between cryptocurrency and the environment. Cryptocurrencies are increasingly being accused of flagrant environmental damage, as these digital currencies rely on proof-of-work mining, which is, quite simply, a controlled way of wasting energy. Pete, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. No, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to other geographers about this. I think it's been ignored in geography for sometimes people people see this as just a purely virtual thing um there's nothing for geographers here but it has profound social and environmental consequences this so it's 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 great to get more geographers on board we're really excited and i think a part of that hesitation from geographers is that people don't understand cryptocurrency and uh, the metaverse and the digital world so straight off can i ask you to explain what is blockchain um, and how does it underpin cryptocurrencies okay so a blockchain is a clunky inefficient app end only database and i'm not selling it very well um, but the best way to explain why something like this could ever be somewhat useful um, is by looking at the first ever cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, which I'm sure most people have heard of now. Um, Bitcoin was designed as the first peer-to-peer system of digital cash. And you're probably thinking, well, isn't all cash digital these days, especially with the with the COVID pandemic, you hardly ever come across a £10 note these days because it's hygiene reasons and things like that. Um, but Bitcoin was meant to be digital cash without any banks. So in with Bitcoin, Bitcoiners don't trust banks. They don't trust regulators or any intermediaries for that matter. So banks that would normally keep the books are disintermediated instead Bitcoiners rely on a global network of competing computers to do the the job of keeping the books. And this is what's called proof-of-work mining. So they're in competition, all of these miners. They want the job of keeping the books because they receive rewards for doing it. So anyone can join this competition. All you have to do is download the Bitcoin software. I don't recommend you do this, of course, but this is all you need to do. Um, And you need to ask your computer to play guess the number over and over again. So it's a bit like a lottery. And if you win the lottery, you get to keep the books. You get the right to pick the transactions that get added to a block. So once the block with all these transactions in reaches one megabyte in size, that block is then locked for editing. This is what gives blockchain its immutability. 
Um, you can only add information to it. You can't change it or take anything out once it's locked. Um, and the block gets added to the front of a chain. That's why we call it blockchain. Um, and you receive, for doing this work, 6.25 freshly minted Bitcoin. And each Bitcoin is worth, um, as of today, I think about £16,000. So it's big money if you win this competition. Um, and you also get the transaction fees paid by users of the network. So instead of you paying a sort of annual subscription to Microsoft or Google, and then you can do as many Excel spreadsheets as you like in that time, um, with Bitcoin, you pay per transaction, so per entry to the blockchain. And that money that you pay for using the network goes to miners, and that's their reward for doing the work they do. So the, the number that everyone's guessing is reset every 10 minutes. A new block is created every 10 minutes and uh, this competition continues forever. You've said before that cryptocurrency is a disaster for the climate and that it has a monstrous energy demand. How does a digital currency actually have an impact in the real world? So it's often said that this proof of work mining thing is essentially a network of computers that are solving complicated maths puzzles. Um, it's not anything like that. It's actually just guess the number. It's a controlled way of wasting energy. So the proof of work consensus protocol, this mechanism for maintaining consensus on the network, making sure that all the different computers storing the blockchain agree on what should go on the blockchain, um, proof of work, it can be said, it can be considered as proof of waste. Its inefficiency isn't an accidental side effect of this technology. Proof of work is inefficient by design. And I've argued that this actually makes Bitcoin possibly the most purposefully polluting technology ever invented. So when you think about the most environmentally disastrous technologies, you might think asbestos, putting lead in petrol. These were bad ideas in hindsight, but the pollution was a side effect. But with Bitcoin, it's the feature. So you'll often hear Bitcoiners argue that the, the waste is the feature. It's not the bug. It's not something that can be eliminated. It's actually what gives Bitcoins their value. So when Bitcoin first kicked off in 2009, Bitcoins weren't worth anything. They weren't worth, well, they were worth a tiny little bit of money. So you could get several hundred Bitcoins together and you could buy some SpongeBob SquarePants stickers. It cost 10,000 Bitcoin to buy two pizzas. There were actually websites back, back in 2010 where you could get hundreds of Bitcoin for free every day. The most famous website was called Bitcoin Faucet, where you would just go, you upload your Bitcoin wallet address and you'd have hundreds of Bitcoin transferred to you. So very little effort was going in into the early days to get in these Bitcoins. Very few people wanted to get involved in playing this competition, proof of work, mining, because it wasn't worth wasting energy for this stuff that essentially didn't have any value. The incentives to mine Bitcoin and validate transactions just weren't there. So you can think of proof of work mining Try and imagine this. You might have to close your eyes. Um, like an ever-expanding game of uh, Hungry Hippos. So you if you have uh, just a few players playing a game of Hungry Hippos, it's easy to win something. You just bash, bash a couple of times and you win some Bitcoin. But if the value of Bitcoin goes up, the more 
people get attracted to this game, want to join in. The game expands. You have more hippos crowding around the outside of this playing field. And this game gets harder and harder as the field gets bigger and bigger. There are no extra balls or Bitcoin added as an incentive for playing. Actually, the amount of balls in this Hungry Hippo games decreases every four years. It halves. So the difficulty level of this competition adjusts to make sure that blocks are validated roughly every 10 minutes. So there's fewer rewards over time. And so the game gets harder to win. So back in, in 2009, when this all started, you could mine Bitcoin with an average laptop and win hundreds of Bitcoin. Now you need, today, um, about one and a half million pounds worth of specialist computer equipment. And, and then you will only win, on average, once per week. But it's worth it because one Bitcoin is worth 16,000 pounds today. So you have more and more people trying to get involved in this game because the incentives for doing so are so high. So around the world, you have a few hundred thousand of these warehouses, shipping container complexes or big server room centers full of these specialist computers, uh, what we call ASIC machines, application-specific integrated circuits. So they're not like laptops that we use. These are specialist boxes with a fan on either end. And all they do is play, guess a number for Bitcoin. Um, and all together, to, as of today, these machines are carrying out 200 quintillion operations or guesses every single second. And a quintillion is one followed by 18 zeros. So there's 200 quintillion guesses uh, happening every second on the Bitcoin network. So that's several hundred times more powerful than all the world's supercomputers put together. And these machines are, are, are not... Finding a cure for cancer, they're not working out the optimal spaceship trajectories or anything like that. Nothing of value. All these specialist machines are doing are playing guess a number. They can't do anything else. They can't be repurposed to do anything else. So we might be thinking, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin's falling to zero right now. And when it does, we can just take all of this network of millions of computers and repurpose them to do something useful. You can't. All you can do is throw them in the bin um, because they're tailored machines. So Bitcoin alone sometimes uses as much energy as the whole of Argentina. And it has a carbon footprint today of around 75 million tons. Um, and that's with Bitcoin's price falling through the floor. So that's three times more carbon emitted from the Bitcoin network than the most polluting power plant in Europe, which is Belkatau coal-fired power station. It's three times more polluting than that. And that's a power plant that's been ordered by a judge to close because it's so polluting. So, I mean, as a kid, I, I grew up being shouted at if I left a light bulb on somewhere in the house, I'd be made to run upstairs and turn it off. But with Bitcoin running every second of every day, we're talking about energy use, which is equivalent to leaving on hundreds of billions of light bulbs all year round just to keep Bitcoin going. So this is, this is potentially going to cause an existential crisis for humanity um, because of the environmental consequences that this is having. 
And can the carbon emissions that we've been talking about there, for example, that carbon footprint of Bitcoin being the size of Argentina, swell and shrink just like its price does? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So the the reason why proof of work is called proof of work is because it's it's presumed a miner should be spending roughly about what one Bitcoin is worth to mine one Bitcoin. So today, if if Bitcoin is worth £16,000, you'll find a Bitcoin miner that's willing to spend up to £16,000 on energy and other inputs in order to to mine it. So this is the Bitcoin energy price equilibrium that eventually gets reached before miners start capitulating. So if miners are spending more than what the rewards are potentially, then they'll start to switch off their machines and we'll see that the um, energy use and carbon footprint of the network drops. But profitable miners stay in the game until they reach an equilibrium and they switch their machines off. So um, lots of Bitcoiners are predicting that in the future, one Bitcoin would be worth half a million dollars. Some are saying a million dollars for one Bitcoin. But if if it ever reached that much money, we'll be seeing Bitcoin network have a, a carbon footprint of roughly the, the same as Germany's. So that's 617 million tonnes of carbon every year from Bitcoin, if it ever got to half a million dollars, let's say. So this is doomsday stuff. Um, And we can see this play out in real time. You don't just have to guess with some sort of fantasy that it will reach half a million. But I mean, when Bitcoin was booming um, just a few months ago, November 2021, we saw that the Bitcoin network was using well over 200 terawatt hours of electricity every year. So it's a big number, but it's basically it's equal to all of the world's data centers. So basically the whole of the internet. Bitcoin was using the same amount of energy as that. And now the, the Bitcoin price has fallen uh, to about £16,000, as I say. The network's using about 130 terawatt hours um, of electricity which is about roughly the same amount of Argentina uses. So it's still significant, but it's dropped off a lot. And as the price falls, we'll see that the energy use will fall as well. Lots of people, though, are suggesting, well, why don't miners just use renewables? And surely if all the miners in the world are using renewables, then it's not going to have a... It might have a very high energy demand, but it's not going to have a necessarily a very high carbon footprint. But the thing is, is that there's no way to enforce that. I mean, you can ask miners politely to do it, but if if there's no government with a boot on their back telling them to do it, which there isn't, then there, there's no incentive for them to switch to renewables. Um, the vast majority of mining is carried out using fossil fuel power. So about 70% of all Bitcoin are mined using um, fossil fuels, coal, gas, oil. Because it's the most reliable energy source and it's often the cheapest in places where there is no renewable infrastructure in place, which is where a lot of the mining is carried out. If you think coal, if if you want to mine Bitcoin and you've paid for your coal in advance for the next five years, then it's it's you just keep doing it using coal. It's in your interest to do that. You're not going to switch to solar powered mining because then you can only mine bitcoin during the day and you, you you're not going to s- switch to wind because you can only mine bitcoin when the wind's blowing but with coal you can do it 
whenever, 24-7. And that's what you have to do because of the the rate at which your Bitcoin mining equipment becomes obsolete. You only have two years worth of capacity out of those machines. So they have to run 24-7 in order for you to get your money's worth. And you also get this butterfly effect. So if let's say if I decide, well, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to mine my Bitcoin using renewable energy. The thing is with Bitcoin, there's no overall burden. It's not like Bitcoin only works if a certain amount of energy is being wasted in order to keep the guess the number game going. You can run the Bitcoin network with just two computers on computers that are no more powerful than a Nokia 3310, and it would still work. But it's just because so many players are in the game now that you have to use this specialist equipment. So um, Bitcoin miners that are using renewables, all they do when they enter the competition is make it more difficult for miners in other parts of the world where they don't have renewables to mine Bitcoin. So they have to use more coal, they have to use more ASIC machines. So just because I've entered the competition, even if I'm entering the competition with renewables, I've actually increased the carbon footprint of the network as a whole because of this butterfly effect. As you explained a moment ago, this concept of proof of waste by design begs the question, why was Bitcoin and and why are cryptocurrencies created in the first place? Yes, Bitcoin was created as a peer-to-peer system of digital cash. And, And it's failed at that because of, well, for lots of reasons, because of the block size limit mainly, So as I say, this isn't a normal database where you can upload as much information as you like to it. If it's a Google or Microsoft database or Dropbox or something where you can put all your photos in or anything, Bitcoin can only handle one megabyte of inputs every 10 minutes. So that also means that there's a transaction limit on the network as well. So you can only have a maximum of seven transactions per second on the Bitcoin network. If you compare that to the current financial infrastructure that we have, I mean, take just Visa, so discount MasterCard, PayPal, all the other sort of payment rails. If you just take Visa, Visa can handle, they say currently, about 17,000 transactions per second. Bitcoin can do seven. So it in no way can be used as a, a system of digital cash that could ever replace anything like Visa, MasterCard, PayPal or anything like that. And it's not like you can just tweak this. Like it's pretty much, it's a very conservative bunch of coders that are behind this and they don't want to change it at all. And if you were to change it, you'd have to fork the network and you'd meet a lot of resistance. So there's no appetite to do this. Bitcoin is super volatile. You only really hear about Bitcoin when it's booming or busting, really. It's never sort of steadily plodding along it's always sort of booming or busting that's the nature of it so you can't price anything in bitcoin it's not like i'm going to my coffee shop and ask you know if it was all priced in bitcoin the price would be double one day and then half the next so it it can't be used as a viable means of exchange um it's also deflationary by design um so that it's it's meant to be the opposite of the currency which is in our pocket the pounds or dollars or whatever which actually are inflationary, which actually makes spending Bitcoin not make any sense. 
So if I walk into a coffee shop and I've got Bitcoin to spend and I've got pounds, it makes more sense to spend the pounds because the pounds will be worth less tomorrow. Bitcoin apparently will be worth more tomorrow, so you don't spend it. And that's why there's this annual festival that Bitcoiners have called Bitcoin Pizza Day. So back in um, about 10, 11, maybe 12 years ago now, a guy called Lasloff, he um, paid $10,000 to buy two pizzas. Um, and now they say, you know, that that amount of money is now probably worth a couple of billion or something. And he'd probably be one of the richest men in the world or something. But, you know, th- this is the ridicule that people are faced with when they actually spend this form of digital cash. You're not meant to spend it. You're meant to hodl it. You're meant to hold it. So, um, yeah, it can't be used as a viable means of, estate, of exchange. So Bitcoin is instead, because they know that it doesn't work as digital cash, agree that this stuff works better as a store of value. So effectively like digital gold. But again, it's, it's too volatile for that. So it completely crashes every year or so. This isn't a, a, like a new thing, what's happening right now with a Bitcoin price halving in a couple of weeks. Most people who have ever purchased Bitcoin in the history of this cryptocurrency have now lost money. So you can't use it as a viable store of value or as a means of exchange. And and gold mining, like, is bad, like, for the environment. It has massive social and environmental problems associated with it. I spent some time in, in Papua in, in gold mines there, and you could see that the devastation that gold mining is um, having on the environment there. But crypto is far more destructive. So it doesn't, just because it's digital gold, it doesn't remove any of those environmental consequences of this technology. So not just in terms of how much energy is being used. So obviously you have to mine all that coal to keep Bitcoin going. So it doesn't remove the need for physical mining. But you also have to mine all of the materials that are required for those specialist computers. And research has been done recently that suggests that every time you carry out a transaction on the Bitcoin network, you're responsible for an iPad's worth of e-waste going into landfill, wherever it goes. So which makes it just completely ridiculous environmentally as a sort of better alternative to what we have now, even though what we have now is very bad. So the whole network, it causes roughly 37,000 tonnes of e-waste every year. So, I mean, Bitcoin isn't doing anything that it originally set out to do in 2008, 2009. It's failed. And am I right in thinking that some other cryptocurrencies are environmentally better than Bitcoin, for example? We we focus a lot on Bitcoin, but there are alternatives like Ethereum. There are cryptocurrencies like Cardano's ADA, for example. You've got Nano. These cryptocurrencies use alternative proof-of-stake consensus protocols. What this means is instead of having a competition, which you have for proof-of-work, the network, they basically vote and delegate one computer to validate the transactions that get added to a blockchain. And then once they've done that, then they then vote and allocate the responsibility for keeping the books to someone else. So it means that these... Networks can run on a phone rather than a network of hundreds of ASIC servers. So, I mean, from an environmental perspective, that's obviously much better. 
We've talked a lot about mining in the real world. Is there also human impact from cryptocurrencies? Uh, why are poor communities in the global south at risk of losing out in particular? Proof of work miners, they head to the poorest, most marginalised communities in the world because it's there that you'll find the cheap energy, corrupt governments and the most desperate populations that are willing to take the risk on this new technology. So they have to put up with these parasitic miners that are coming in, taking local resources, including energy, and leaving very little for local people to develop their own economy. Um, there's the e-waste problem as well that we talked about, which is generally dumped on the global south. So that's 37,000 tonnes of e-waste, which generally gets goes to places like India, Bangladesh, China, for um, for them to deal with switching on basically the dirtiest sources of energy in order to keep proof of work mining going. So in the in a, in the US for example, they've had these communities that are probably celebrating that these very dirty power plants have been switched off for many years now and they've enjoyed a clean environment. But in New York New York state for example, we're seeing coal fire fossil fuel power plants that are being switched on again in order to, for proof-of-work miners to mine Bitcoin. And this is sort of the environmental racism thing has been playing out in these contexts for some time. But proof-of-work miners perpetuate that. And of course, the poorest people in the world are the most vulnerable to climate change. We know that from um, recent reports from the United Nations. So these are the people at the sharp end of when this massive carbon emissions that come from Bitcoin are taking effect on on the climate. It's, it's the poorest that are going to be um, worse off. So, I mean, just maybe a few examples from the research that, that I've done. Yeah, so if, we, if you take the case of the Navajo Nation in New Mexico, so within the Navajo Nation, this is a community which is facing severe social deprivation it puts them on a par with a country like Haiti in terms of human development within the richest country on earth. The Navajo Nation has a massive reserve of coal, but instead of using that coal and those resources to enable industrial development or some sort of human development for the Navajo people, we find that because that coal is subsidized, that Bitcoin miners have come there and are using it to mine Bitcoin. And those 15,000 households are, are without electricity now at all. Like, there's not just intermittent electricity. They have no fridges, there's no television, there's no phone or anything like that. And Bitcoiners are coming in and making the most of the fact that this energy is subsidized. And we see this playing out in Virunga National Park, for example. So uh, an EU-funded hydroelectric power plant was set up in, in Virunga in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That power plant was meant to fund a papaya processing center. It was meant to fund a soap factory in order to get people who live in and around Virunga National Park to stop fighting each other in civil wars and stop poaching wildlife, gorillas and elephants and things, and to get them to stop cutting down trees, uh, illegal logging to make a living, so instead they could work in these industries that are powered by hydro plants. Instead, 
Bitcoiners have come along, realised they can get cheap electricity, they're reliable from these hydro plants, and they use the energy instead, which means that no development is happening. It's worth remembering that these proof-of-work mining centres, which you can imagine as you know, massive complexes within warehouses or stacked shipping containers full of these ASIC machines, they don't employ anyone. Like I, I, I spent some time in uh, Iceland recently. We went to one of the biggest Bitcoin mining centres in the world. We were wandering around for nearly an hour. We didn't come across anyone. And eventually uh, a, a, a young security guard turned up after after an hour and asked us what we were doing. And we just said we wanted to look around. But I mean, this is the thing. There's no one works there. So no one can make a living from these places. They say that they are they come offering jobs and economic development, but they're not. They're taking local resources and sending the profits back to the global north or wherever it is that they come from. That's the nature of this. And we call this in, in the research that we, that we do, um, that we've done on this um, crypto colonialism. And, and it, of course, even where renewables are used, like in the case of uh, Virunga, which is hydropower, in, in Iceland, they use geothermal to mine Bitcoin. It leaves a massive scar on the landscape. This isn't benign technology that's being used. In El Salvador, recently, they've proposed that they're going to be using um, geothermal from the volcano. El Salvador has the second highest rate of deforestation anyway. So you're going to, well, they plan to cut down much of the forest in order to make way for these geothermal power plants, as if this is a sort of environmentally friendly thing. So this is no good for the poorest and most marginalized communities in the world even though a lot of international development rhetoric is used in order to sort of legitimise um, this technology. It feels like we've laid out quite a strong argument against cryptocurrencies. Why has President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador adopted it as legal tender in El Salvador then? Yeah, so um, this is a weird one. So Nayib Bukele, uh, he, he's been a Bitcoiner for years. And he apparently said back in 2020, I mean, I haven't heard the interview where he said this, but there's evidence from people who um, have been researching this, that he funded his election campaign using profits from Bitcoin, from his own Bitcoin stash. So, I mean, he's been a Bitcoiner for some time. So that's generally where this has come from. There's no doubt that the country, El Salvador, has spent a lot of money on implementing a Bitcoin payment system. Some people say it's a couple of hundred million in putting together these Chivo ATMs, which is a way of basically buying and selling Bitcoin for people in El Salvador. But it's not clear if the country has bought any Bitcoin. So Nayib Bukele, he often, he's a bit of a Trumpist. He's sort of, he's, he's into Twitter. He he's, he's claims that he spends money from the country's coffers on Bitcoin whilst he's naked and sat on the toilet and things. You know, this is great for his young audience, but there's no evidence that shows that he's actually doing what he's saying, whether he is buying Bitcoin. He doesn't give away the Bitcoin addresses that he's using. So you can't check on the Bitcoin blockchain whether these funds has left an account 
or, or you know been used to pay for bitcoin he might just be making this all up but he i mean he apparently he has plans for this bitcoin city idea and this would be paid for from a bitcoin bond that would pay out a, a massive yield to international investors once the price of bitcoin reaches a million dollars this is the idea but i mean we've already said if it reaches half a million dollars then you're talking about carbon emissions 617 million tons as much as germany so it would never get that high before people would intervene surely so it's all hair-brained fantasy but i mean even if it wasn't this the environmental implications for el salvador and the world generally would be um would would, would be very high so i'm not convinced i'm not convinced that el salvador is using this in in any sincere way i would say that this is a an elaborate way of sticking the middle finger up to the imf and the world bank finally and i think i know the answer to this is there a future for cryptocurrency in a sustainable 21st century world yeah so blockchain beyond bitcoin ideas have seeped into every part of our online lives blockchain for good crypto for good if you haven't come across these terms by now you you'll probably soon have it rubbed in your face i i mean i came across blockchain during my phd whilst i was researching carbon offsetting schemes in indonesia like red plus reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation this un endorsed scheme to create a market for carbon commodities from saved forests to make them more valuable standing than cut down I was looking at how local communities were engaging with these sorts of projects. And the project that I was looking at, Rimbaraya in Kalimantan in Indonesia, started using blockchain technology in order to sell these carbon credits. And they were suggesting that all the problems that have beset carbon markets around the world could be fixed using blockchain. So you could fix any issues around permanence and additionality and leakage and you could bring in sustainable financing you can have um, accurate monitoring and you can ensure there's fair and equitable benefit sharing using blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies so if i was to buy in me in the global north if i wanted to offset my carbon emissions i could buy this cryptocurrency which could be used to buy carbon credits from the Rimbaraya Red Plus project in Indonesia. This was the idea. There's lots of these projects now that are trying to use blockchain for mitigating climate change. So, for example, you'll find a carbon offset project in Peru. They will convert the offset certificate into an NFT, for example, and then the NFT will be traded like it's a speculative asset on a global market. And the only problem is, is that ordinarily when you buy a carbon offset, it's retired on a registry. So essentially I'm buying the carbon offset and then tearing it up because then I've offset my emissions. You're never meant to own a carbon credit. You're just meant to consume it, destroy it as soon as you bought it. But with NFTs, the idea is that these are collectibles, that you buy an offset it increases in value and then you sell it and then someone else buys it. But what they're buying and selling and trading on a global market 
doesn't represent a material reality in any way. It could be that the the forest associated with that carbon offset was destroyed a long time ago, and yet it's still being transacted. So it's not actually doing anything to fix climate change. It's completely absent from reality. So the, I mean, this is it's it's a big problem, and I think we've got to be really careful of scams. So the so, so projects that claim to be a fix in terms of bringing about sustainability, really, I think this is such this ecosystem, the, the blockchain ecosystem is so full of scams. We have to be really careful when they claim that they can be used for environmental ends. Saying that, though. I've done some research recently around using cryptocurrencies for degrowth projects. So there's projects in Barcelona that are experimenting with blockchain cryptocurrencies in order to bring about more sustainable local community currencies. Um, there's the People's Bank in Govan, of Govan Hill in Glasgow that are doing the same. There's a, a project in Bristol called the Bristol Pound. So ordinarily, well, for some time, they've been using paper money in order to facilitate a, a local community currency. But they're experimenting with blockchain now to see if, if it's a, a more trustworthy means of keeping the books around this Bristol Pound idea. So I'm not wholly against it. I think it's it, it could be useful as a sort of transition into a a, a more sustainable economy. But I don't think that cryptocurrencies are the final solution for the environmental problems that we have in our society. The thing is with cryptocurrencies and blockchain is that blockchain is meant to remove the need to trust each other. And inevitably, if you want a sustainable society, that's going to be a society where everyone trusts each other. That's more localized. So if we put our faith in blockchain solutions, inevitably we will have communities where there is less trust, not more trust. And I think that would be a shame. That would lead to more social problems, not fewer, um, and potentially more environmental problems. Um, so we have to be really careful with this. We, we need to cut through the hype and think about ways of using this technology which could have equitable outcomes. I've learned so much today, Pete. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org/schools. Schools.